Welcome to another episode of the ADHD Families Podcast. You are going to love today's episode. I'm chatting to Emma Gilmore, who owns Hope Rising Coaching. Now, she is a licensed counsellor and a psychotherapist who helps people with their relationship with alcohol. She's a neurodivergent mum of divergent teens as well. And in this chat, we cover a variety of topics. We talk about alcohol and having a bit of a plan, being intentional about alcohol, whether you have... um, you know, struggles with alcohol or not, I think you are going to love this chat. We also delve into a little bit about PDA and her family's journey uh, about being neurodivergent. And she is just such a calming, kind soul. You you will hear this come across in the chat. And I am so grateful for her joining us in the podcast. Hello, I'm Sharon Collin, and you are listening to the ADHD Families Podcast. I am a mum of three beautiful boys with ADHD. I love being a mum, but my home life was absolute chaos and the stress of daily life had a terrible effect on my health. My husband had so many horror-filled stories of growing up with ADHD that I decided I wanted to change the experience for my little boys. So I got to work and I systematically changed and streamlined my family's lives to suit the ADHD brain. And now that I have my family on track, I want to help yours. Do you want a life with your beautiful kids that is more functional, fun, and full of joy? Let's explore together the wonderful and sometimes wacky world of raising kids with ADHD. Welcome, Emma. It's so great to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it, Shanna. Oh, I'm excited for our chat today. Now, to start, if you can tell me a little bit about what you do and why you do it. Yeah, so I work with women in midlife who are wanting to change their relationship with alcohol. I say I work with women in midlife who are trying to find their groove without the booze, um, which happens to a lot. And The reason that I do it is because I was trained to be a counsellor, psychotherapist. And during that journey, I had this little tap, tap, tapping on my heart, I think, that said, I think maybe you might want to look at what's happening with you and alcohol and why you're using it. And so I made the decision to after lots and lots of trial and error and hating, taking some time off and having that really horrible, kind of like desperately wanting to have a drink and not being able to situation, I found out that there was a slightly different way of of, of taking a break. And I wanted to try and have a year off booze um, just to see what it was like, to see if I could manage it. Because I'd literally been drinking since I was like 13. Not necessarily even what you would consider to be an excessive drinker, but I just... I think I got into my 40s and it started to feel like it was just having a little bit. I was waking up. It was disturbing my sleep. I think I was probably going into perimenopause as well. And at this time, again, I didn't know that I had ADHD. I didn't know we were a family of neurodivergence and everything seemed to be really hard. Right. I was trying to get everyone out the door for school. I was working five days a week. It all seemed really hard. And my glass of wine was like, ah, in the evening, oh, thank God. Um, and but there was this little stuck, tucking part of me that said, oh, "Maybe, 
maybe there's something to look at here. It might be helpful for you to have a look at this. So I found this way of that, that I'd heard that people could stop, take a break from drinking and not feel that kind of resistance and that kind of deprivation and stuff like that. And I was like, wow, I might as well try it. It was like 50 bucks. And I thought, well, you know, if I could do this and maybe take a year off and experience all the highs and lows of life without booze, that would be amazing, number one, because I could barely manage a month. Um, but it might be interesting, right? It might be interesting to see what happens. And then within two weeks, I had completely gone from, like, being a wine lover extraordinaire, like, totally my identity was all about wine and my social life was all about wine. I thought I was quite sort of, like, posh and sophisticated and, you know, that I was, like, a bit of a, uh, what do you call it, wine snob. And suddenly I was, like, rewriting all these neural pathways and, like, Suddenly, I had an experience where I questioned something that I believed about wine as clear as, you know, as much as the sky is blue or the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. I hope I've got that the right way around. <laughs> um, and um, it just changed everything for me. And I went from a person who was fixated about alcohol you know again not in an extraordinary way but like I'd be thinking about it when was I going to drink how much was I going to drink you know how, you know trying to keep to the two glasses of wine and have a drink of water in between all that stuff so I had this sort of like fixation to someone who was literally just like I can take this or leave it like I can literally take it or leave it and I thought that was magical because that was what I was looking for. I was looking for that release, that freedom, that if I want to have a glass of wine, I can have one, but I don't feel that sort of tug. Um, and so I added the training that the course was that I did to my counselling and psychotherapy, and that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing. And thank goodness I did. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me what um, a... You know, if someone was to come and see you, how would they present? Um, well, it's different. This is a bit like saying, how would a neurodivergent person mm. present? <laughs> because everybody's so different. Like I have some clients who barely drink at all, but who are really dis disheartened, disgruntled by the fact that when they do drink, it's not intentional. So, for example, they, it's their subconscious and they don't understand why and what's happening. So we get into, we go into and, and sort of try and understand what's happening with the nervous system mm -hmm. that you feel that, that, that we're looking to escape from. And often with clients, it can be about, you know, being with our big emotions because often many, many of my clients um, – and I think most people in my generation, I don't know how old you are, Sharon, but I've just turned 50. And a lot of my clients are sort of in between 40 and 60, I would say. Mm -hmm. And we were definitely brought up, I think most of my clients are neurodivergents, either diagnosed or undiagnosed. And this was very true for me is I, when I was growing up, I was just, you know, things that I did were unusual in my family. <laughs> Like, you know, I, ha I had very big experiences. I also wanted to shut myself away. I didn't enjoy some of the 
um, performative parts of having guests round. I like to read my book. Um, but then things that I was super excited and passionate about, I would be what would be considered too much, mm-hmm. you know? And so my emotions, and this is a lot of my neurodivergent clients and my clients in general, you know, we were told to suck it up. We were told to get on with it not complain to, you know, we just had to push on through, right? And so we've all learned all these coping strategies of which alcohol is just another one of managing our nervous systems Mm. when they're dysregulated. And for my generation, particularly, a lot of us have been rewarded in life by being good, being a good girl, doing things right, getting your academics. And so what that then happens is all the shoulds. So, you know, we know that the shoulds come from parents, you know, our parents, our societal um, obligations. And you know what an obligation feels like. It's that horrible sort of resentment because you know you should be doing something, but you don't really want to. And often wine gives us an excuse to to, to not do the thing. Mm, it's interesting that you say that. It's fascinating. Yes. Uh, now, I can remember I have a pretty, I, I think... Uh, me, myself and Anthony are pretty good with alcohol. Like we're definitely not big drinkers. Um, but there have been times in my life where I've definitely drunk more. Once when I lived in London and I was a backpacker and I can remember thinking, how can people go a day without having a glass of wine, right? I can remember thinking it was so foreign. I was such in the pattern of having alcohol every day that I actually thought it was so foreign to not have any. Mm. Um, and I feel I'm conscious of that, you know, below mm. the surface, you know, right, that you can get into patterns. And yeah. once we have patterns of behaviour and habits yeah. that form, yeah. um, it can be quite tricky. Yeah. Um, I would love to know, um, you know, what sort of, you know, advice that you can have to help people. Perhaps they found themselves in a pattern of cooling down in the evening of having that wine, yeah. like you described, and warming up with coffee in the morning. Yeah. and. Uh, what you know what sort of um strategies would you be able to assist people with to get out of that pattern the biggest thing that i can ever ever recommend to anybody just wanting to take a look at their relationship with alcohol not to necessarily stop to not to even have a break just to um be more intentional around it which is a great goal right i love that word is awareness so mm-hmm. just taking a look at what you're doing, why you're doing it, and just really, you know, changing that self-judgment, which we often have if we've had a glass of wine at five o'clock and we didn't want to that day. Let's say it was a Wednesday, we're like, I'm not drinking until the weekend. And you go like, oh gosh, I really just need to, because often the body just needs to be grounded is what we actually need when we have a glass of wine. We need to, it's like that, so you know that feeling, It's just the body wanting to be grounded. And so what I, what I suggest to people is, and I have a couple of worksheets of this, is that you just pay attention. You'd be amazed the change that can happen in your relationship with alcohol by just paying attention to it. When did you start thinking about it? You'll be surprised. Like all of that chatter in your brain about, you know, I'll have a pint of water in between a glass of wine when I go out and all that, you know, just being aware of all of that. What's happening? How excited are you about it? Because often... It's not about being what we continue, you know, consider 
um, you know, it's like an al- the, the traditional version of an alcoholic, which is a term that doesn't exist anymore, but we still hear it a lot in society. It's got so much stigma attached to it. Or even, you know, problem drinking. People are like, oh, oh, you've not got problem, have you? And then suddenly it's like, oh. Um, but actually just regular day-to-day drinking, because alcohol actually is addictive, it's an addictive substance, we just have to keep an eye on it, right? No one's saying don't do it. We do lots of risky things in our life. That life is a, a whole smorgasbord of (laughs) delicious delectable risks that we take but let's be informed about it and let's be intentional about it so if we're using it to cut our nervous system what would be a better route to that than something that's actually going to increase our anxiety levels which is what alcohol does so we think almost everything with alcohol is fascinating because it's almost like everything about it, the opposite is actually true. So we think it relaxes us, it actually fills our body with adrenaline and cortisol and it makes us really stressed. Um, we think it makes us more funny and actually, you know, when you've hung out with the people who are, who are drinking and you're not drinking, you can see that it really doesn't make people more funny or more astute or more we feel like it makes us feel more confident but what it does is it kind of abandons us it allows us to separate ourselves from ourselves we can sort of we can glide through but underneath that there's a little person who's frightened and they're having a bad time and that abandonment of self can actually be really harmful for us in the long run because we're we're just putting a plaster over what's really happening in our nervous system and trying to pretend it's not happening, you know. Does that make sense? When I you know, that? Yes, and I think that will resonate a lot with the audience, you know, regardless of whether they're experiencing troubles with alcohol or not. A lot of us use it for that kind of social lubricant feeling and feeling like maybe it's a little bit awkward at the start of an event or something so you go straight for a drink Um, and it's interesting what you said about you know the stress like that actually makes us feel um, more stressed I was listening to um, you know some research about alcohol and in the way that it was showing that alcohol actually decreases our frustration tolerance in even when you're not drinking yeah right yeah. so I was like okay for people with ADHD who have a lower frustration yes. tolerance anyway yes. this is quite significant it can be it can mm. be and the reason that I've ended up staying not drinking which was a choice it wasn't like oh I have to and I don't ever say that. I'm not, I never like, I'm never going to. But for me personally, it has allowed me to be so much less reactive. Mm. That's the greatest gift it's given me. And I would say even without anything else, the relationship with my family who we now know are all neurodivergence of their own special spicy variety um it's really important for safety like everybody feeling safe relational safety and we weren't living like that you know I look back on it now knowing what I do in retrospect um and it's I think it's the greatest gift I've given to my family um being able to you know be there to understand what's happened since, you know, so um, I hope it's okay for me to talk about this. So Mm. both my kids were diagnosed with ADHD and autism um, shortly after COVID. I think that's quite normal uh, in a quite 
abnormal. That's a bad word. Um, but it's quite a regular thing, I think, for girls. And my, I've got one girl and one female at signed at birth kid who is trans. And they were both really struggling. And they, funny enough, and I think this is quite common as well, they both they both were saying to me, Mum, you need to get us tested. We need to, we, we think we might have autism. We think we might be ADHD. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I love that, that they were so aware. Well, yeah. And it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think kids these days are really aware because they're able to hyper-focus on the things that are of interest to them and find their people. And for us, it was fascinating because we didn't know. But when we took the kids in, and I know this is very common in um, late diagnosed ADHD women, but um, we took the kids in to get their assessments and suddenly all the way through, I'm going, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, laughing because it's like every woman has been Everyone, <laughs> everyone. And now even with the autism, like I'm really keen to get my um, myself tested for autism as well because I had, we all have this idea of what autism is and it's so foreign to what it actually is and what, it's like it presents like in female assigned at birth women and and girls. You know, it's so different, isn't it? Mm. Um, and just going through that process and then I hope you don't mind me again just talking about this. So my youngest child um, really, really struggled with COVID and um, home, which used to be her safe place and the place where she'd be very... Uh, she appeared to be quite like high achieving and competent and capable and managing well at school. And I think it's very normal for neurodivergent families as well that she'd come home and all hell would, mm. would break loose. And I used to be like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe how they have such a different experience of her than we do. And she actually said afterwards, she almost has two personas. She had a school persona, which was somebody with a, she almost, she had a different name for it. It's like a, a personality that she put on, which I guess is masking mm. uh, for school. But when school came home and mum was her teacher, it was like my safe place has completely gone and everything just went to absolute crap. We didn't know what was going on. It was very, very messy. And she couldn't, she couldn't go to school and I think this is very very common and the more I'm part of the groups that I'm part of the more I've learned about she's a PDA diagnosis of autism um, which is known as as I think Christine said it's pathological demand avoidance or as often people prefer and I actually think it's it feels a bit nicer yeah. is that persistent drive for autonomy mm. a fascinating fascinating thing mm. and it's been really hard for her. So she really just took to bed. She took to bed and would, to all intents and purposes, look like somebody who had chronic fatigue or depression. But of course, at this time, we didn't know any of this and we didn't know how, you know, we didn't know loads of mom parenting. We didn't know, we just didn't know anything, right? So we're starting from this level of, I know nothing. And it seemed like all the professionals that we were meeting didn't really know very much either. And they were, what was happening, which was really, really hard, was, and I, I think 
as I'm going through this, I'm learning more about from the ADHD perspective that rejection dysphoria and having that myself, which I didn't realize I, I, I did, but having to constantly kind of prove what was happening to you, find the research papers, advocate on behalf of the child and the people in charge saying, uh-uh, that's mm. not, that's not, that's not a thing not believing you and I actually saw there's a lady called Viv who has written this amazing book Viv Graves I think her name is and she's written this brilliant book about autistic burnout in children um and I was she was she's literally just done a petition for the UK parliament to say we need to recognize autistic burnout as a thing because at the moment schools don't know anything about it they don't know what it is and when the medical professionals won't uh, say that that's what somebody has because they don't know it either. It seems like the child is the problem. And so that's the way the medical system works with it. This has been our experience anyway. And again, I can't talk for everyone, but I am in a lot of Facebook groups with uh, PDA parents. And I would my understanding from the PDA society is that 70% of PDA kids can't attend school, mm-hmm. traditional school at the moment. Um, the reason being that it's such a demanding environment and it's so intense for kids who PDA is pathological. Um, sorry, uh, what's the other better? Uh, persistent. Persistent <laughs> drive yeah. for autonomy. Yes. <laughs> they, when a person's in autistic burnout, chronic autistic burnout, which is what I now know my, my little one is, um, everything is all of those sensory parts of us that are heightened anyway by being a neurodivergent person with sensitivities in that area um, are are heightened extremely. So, for example, if I walk into the room and I say, morning, Daisy, she'd be like, stop shouting, mum. You know, Mm. like that literally sounds like it's like everything's heightened at such a level. So the school environment is incredibly intense and having to move from room to room. And I think for a lot of kids, especially when you get into high school and suddenly you're moving from this room to that room to that room to that room. Um, So that's the thing that we found really, really tricky. And I've spent a lot of time, we've gone into... Um, the system around um, school avoidance, and that is very much uh, focused on immersion therapy. So immersion therapy is um, a treatment for anxiety, and it's tend that the idea is that if you do something often enough, you will get accustomed to it and be able to do it. It's the absolute worst thing to put a kid who is going through PDA, is going through autistic burnout, whose nervous system is already completely highly, uh, you know, sensitized, Mm -hmm. is to try and force them to do something or imply that they're not trying hard enough. Because with autistic burnout, chronic autistic burnout, which is what my kid has and so many other kids, it's a physical thing. 
it's like I literally I wake up in the morning I can't open my eyes I wake up in the morning I can't lift my head up off the pillow but a few days later I might be able to do those things and then I can do a little bit of something and then I need to recover again and from all the research I've read the the way to work with autistic burnout is to is compassion low demand huge amount of regulation huge amount of co-regulation relational safety and just r removing barriers so we've been very lucky we, we we've had a really painful time for two years i would say of our experiences being denied not being able to find professionals who understood and even so, even now, because some of it's so new, we're, we've had to educate some professionals. But, you know, there's a difference between people who are willing to be educated mm. different, and people who think they know everything. Um, I do love a good doctor who says, I'm not sure about that, but I'll have a look and get back to you. Isn't it amazing? Isn't that amazing? It makes all the difference, doesn't it? Um, I've got a couple of questions Go that I wanted it. to ask through. Um, I wanted to find out whether you think that having ADHD or autism makes you more likely to have a trouble with alcohol. We know, you know, uh, yes. well, addiction issues. Yes. Yeah. Well, the figures are that, yes, it's like um, it's a huge majority. And I would say that 95% of my customers are neurodivergent or you know undiagnosed or diagnosed but it's a coping mechanism like mm. anything right and yep. we have lots and lots of different coping mechanisms alcohol is just one and it does what it says on the tin for a period of time until it doesn't mm -mm. so you know it's it's like all of these things i remember reading brene brown's um, midlife awakening and she talks about you know all of these adaptations that we have put on in order to keep us safe. You know, the things that helped us calm our nervous system, the things that they suddenly start not not working the way that they used to. They start causing us more problems than benefits. And that's kind of when we need to look at them and, and, and change them. Because, you know, one person's adaptation could be a very tidy house or working very hard. Another person's adaptation could be alcohol. And it's almost like we need to see these things in the same light because it's, you know, it's all about ourselves trying to keep ourselves safe. It's not a anything that's wrong with the human being, right? The human being is always amazing and good and wonderful they're just trying to find ways to survive well in the world you know does that make sense yes it absolutely does i've got i've got a couple more i've got a few more little things that just sprung into my yes. mind as you were talking um i want to know a few things uh i want to know about so we know with adhd we have that um sort of uh, oppositional pushback right and usually people with ADHD don't love being told what to do right and when we can even put self-imposed this is what I love being an ADHD coach for so even when we put some self-imposed um, regulations on things we often experience that rebellion yes. even against ourselves so alcohol becomes like a it can be be an example of that. So you say, Absolutely. oh, I'm only going to have like two drinks at this party and then all of them, ah, I'm not going to be told what to do even by myself, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to go on a bender or whatever. 
Can you help, um, you know, maybe speak to that? Yes. Because I, I, re- I re- resonate with that so much, right? <laughs> because I was like 100% that person. Like, you're not going to tell me what to do. Uh, and it's really interesting. And we do a lot of work around this um, because there's a lot of perception shifts that we need to make around alcohol. As I said, almost everything that we believe about it to be true, the opposite is true. So we think that, for example, someone will come and say to you, oh, I think you might be drinking a bit too much tonight. You're like, right, I'll show them I'm going to have 10 glasses of wine. Right. And this is I'm saying this because I would have done this. Um, But in reality, you're not showing anyone. Right. Who are you showing? (laughs) showing you're showing yourself you know like you're the person you're you're potentially hurting by having 10 glasses of wine so a lot of it's a perception shift it's like because as well trying is really hard for us as neurodivergence and the idea of stopping drinking when it becomes another should another trying another push another bloody thing we've got to do and all the list of things are so freaking hard anyway that makes it really hard too so we have to, it's like a perception shift. So whatever, it's not, it's not about what I have to do. It's about what I get to do. So mm, it's I almost like reframing that concept of I can't have something to I don't want something, you know, I wouldn't want it anyway, you know, because I, if you start to reframe it as a gift to yourself, like I'm, I'm giving myself the gift of a night off alcohol. I don't have to make my body do all that stuff that has to happen when I have glass wine. It's a difference. And it's hard to keep it from going there because naturally we want to put it on the shoulds. We want to put it on the shoulds, but it, it, it doesn't need to be a should because a should is something that our parents or society says is what has to happen. Once we make it something about our parents and society, we're going to kick the <laughs> hell out of it, right? Um, I'm interested in, I, I call it um, a party goblin, right? There's an amazing comedian called uh, Isla Schulzinger or something. She does this skit about party goblins. Basically, once you have one or two drinks, yeah. then your party goblin gets yeah. activated and then it's party, it's go time, yeah. and you've lost control. You're not steering the ship anymore. Oh, oh my God, yeah. Um, I would love to you know, have a little chat about that because I think a lot of people start off, say, at a social event, having that, you know, that overcoming that little bit of anxiety or mm. awkwardness that comes um, at the start. Uh, and then, you know, what can they do before their party goblin kicks in? I think it is... So let me just reframe the question to you to make sure I've got it right. So... Mm-hmm. I'm about to get to party goblin, so I'm I'm I'm. There's no one home, but the ship's moving, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, yeah, yeah. It, yes. Like you've had a couple of drinks, and then you know you kind of decide it's a great idea to keep to, going. Do the shots? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all of the all of those things, you know, because we need help getting drunk faster, you know. So Absolutely. shots, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's to. What can you do? I mean, there's lots of practical things you can do, right? So you can make a plan before you go. Making a plan is huge because 
if you think about something and you've got an intention, you're much less likely to get steered a different way. If you, so for example, if you like, I'm, you know, like I said, you know, I'm going to have a glass of water in between each glass of wine. I'm going to leave at this time. Um, another thing is like, make sure that you often, I find I, I used to end up staying at places I didn't really want to stay at. In retrospect, I probably didn't know this at the time, but I used to end up staying longer than I want, than my social ability was able to and so in order for me to push through that I would have more to drink and so I think also just recognizing your ability to be with people so I find I can only do intense social for about two hours so Mm -hmm. I always try and get out with two hours two hours I can have a lovely time everyone's having proper conversations I'm not dancing on the table it's you know it's a it's a good situation for me so that's a really good one um, so have an escape route, be able to get yourself out because yep, that's what used that. to happen to me. I used to get stuck, um, because my husband wasn't ready to go yet. And so what now I do when I'm going to things is I say to him, Hey, you do you, but I'm going to leave at this time. And my friends have got used to it. I, and most of them don't even notice. <laughs> yep. Yep. Not saying that about my <laughs> personality, but they honestly don't. Um, and the first two hours of a party is always the best anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think it was Paris Hilton said nothing good happens after like, uh, nothing good happens after midnight anyway. That's right. I think it's just That's more right. of the same. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So it's preventative things that you can do. And also, you know, visualize yourself. Visualization's amazing. Visualize yourself leaving everyone saying, oh, didn't they look lovely rather than dribbling and, you know, trying to break dance. <laughs> But again, speaking for myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so now we've gone out. There's just, there's, it's been a bit of a chaos night. And, um, you know, something that I want to raise because it comes up a little bit in coaching sometimes um, is that anxiety the next morning. Uh, yeah. So anxiety is, uh, is the, I, I just literally did a webinar on it last night. Oh. It's such a tough thing thing because what's happening there is all of our that adrenaline and cortisol that we've been drinking to try and escape from so the adrenaline and cortisol kicks in the dynorphine kicks in we're drinking to try and get back to the original euphoria um at three o'clock in the morning we wake up because the stress hormones kick in right stress hormones kick in and what happens when they kick in our natural um reaction to that is to come in and judge ourselves and and this is what probably the most fundamental piece in changing your relationship with alcohol is that judgment that self-recrimination that little voice that kept us safe when we were young that's its purpose it's there to keep us safe but it doesn't realize that we're a grown-ass adult now right we don't actually we don't need to going to be approved of by anybody other than ourselves and it's it thinks it's helping us so first of all to have a bit of compassion there but then also to 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 just like quite literally be this is actually harming me so when Mm. you are mean to me I'm much more likely to go and drink again because you are making me feel bad making me feel shame making me feel embarrassed for something that was a very human mistake or human behavior you know I wanted to be happy I wanted to be vibrant I wanted to be whatever nothing wrong with that yeah nothing wrong with any of those things 
we're learning we're all learning aren't we we're learning to do something new so the again it's going back to the awareness so it's you know little judgment little shoulds is it possible that we could choose to be curious about what happened so that we can make a plan I love that for next time. yep yeah so next time love we've that. got a bit of a we know what went wrong we can make a plan but if we're busy judging ourselves we haven't got any time for we're in fight or flight again you know we haven't got any time to sort of reflect and learn i love that um bit where you're talking about having a bit of a plan and being a little bit intentional about it i mean sometimes that doesn't happen and that's that's okay but you know like spending that little bit of time going to when you're on the way to the venue perhaps in the car like having a little bit of quiet like thinking how you want the night to look, how you want to feel, how you want to do uh, feel the next day. Um, you know, I think that's got so much weight to that in terms of just having a bit of a picture about it. You know, it's not, not about anyone else. It's just about yourself, yeah. um, which I really like. And then, you know, obviously, you know, being able to check in with yourself during the evening just to see how that's going, assess whether that's still, you know, Mm. The plan's still, you know, it's still working for you. Mm. You know, it's just slowing mm. it down a little bit. I, I did sit, do a coaching session. Um, I've done a few about alcohol, actually. And um, one of the things that I quite like and a strategy that I use myself as well is sometimes if I feel like I'm a bit fatigued or if I yes. feel like I don't have a good handle on it, yes. um, I pace off someone else. That's yes. a bit more sensible than I am. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> Yeah. sometimes if there's someone at the party that that is got you know that's good and I'm I'm not feeling like I'm you know sometimes I am the sensible person but if I'm not feeling particularly on it um then I can just watch what how they're doing because yes. sometimes in conversations when everything's like energy and getting excited yes. and we lose track of how many drinks we've actually had what's happening especially if people are topping up their glasses so if I see them take a sip I might take yes. a sip as well but I just kind of use them as a bit of a benchmark not in a creepy way although it could yeah. possibly no. look creepy but just but as a bit of a pacer and also that's kind of grounding as well and co-regulating isn't it because you're actually sort of identifying with another human being because often we're drinking if we start accelerating there's a reason behind it mm. something's going on for us we may be a bit uncomfortable, we may be wanting to go home, like you say, all of those different things. And so having that sort of co-regulation and being in community, noticing somebody else is going to be helpful in that situation as well, for sure, for sure. So I'd love to know if you think there's a, if there's a person listening to this podcast that's thinking, oh, some of these things are kind of just, you know, I'm just flagging some of these things that might be a concern or perhaps if they're looking to improve their relationship um, with alcohol or maybe have a break from it, you know, what what are um, some steps that they can take now to to be able to help themselves? I think the biggest thing is what we've just talked about, that awareness piece. Mm -hmm. And um, on my website, I do have a download that you can download, which is literally the questions to ask yourself. Awesome. I'll put that, that in the show notes. Guys. And I would <laughs> recommend that we do that um, as the first step. The other thing is just to be aware, and I say this mainly because we are on an ADHD podcast, is because a lot of the time when we're drinking, we're drinking because we are activated in some way. And again, just relating that back to the story I was telling about my kid is 
our society has told us since we were very young to push through, to push down our experience of the world. And it's often we're drinking because we're worried about how we're feeling. You know, we might be feeling anxious, we might be feeling nervous, we might be feeling uh, over, you know, really excited and really celebratory, but those big feelings are, are, are worrying for us because they've been condoned and we've been required to push through our discomfort as human beings when we were younger. And one of the things that I want to do is recognise that and say that I think this is a really important thing that we do and the work that you do, Sharon, around, you know, allowing our kids to have their feelings and really respecting and, and helping them lean into them and being the co-regulation, because these are the things that women of my generation have not learned to do. And that is why people think, oh, it's alcoholics, it's people, you know, who've got drinking problems. It's not, it's regular people managing their nervous system and they're managing their nervous system because no one's ever shown them how. Oh, I love that so much. Mm. Mm, I love that. Now tell me, where can we find you? Ah, well, you can find me at hoperisingcoaching.com. Amazing. And I'll put all the details and a link to that um, checklist resource. that you, yeah, you mentioned, yeah. resource, yeah. in the show notes. So please go and have a look at that. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you for having me and letting me talk about it. It was, it was really lovely to speak to you and meet you. And I just I admire your work so much. And I, oh. I'm so glad that there are people like you in the world doing what you do. Oh, I feel the same way about you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the ADHD Families Podcast. If you loved it, please share it on your socials. I want this to start a conversation about ADHD. If you want to make this mum do a little happy dance, please leave a review on iTunes. If you would like to know more about what we do, check out thefunctionalfamily.com. I truly hope that you enjoyed this podcast and you use it to create a wonderful, effective joyful life with your beautiful children.